Hello and welcome to another week in the world of Sasta with me, your host Harry Stebbings at hstebbings on Snapchat. And this time next week we'll be recording live from San Francisco at the main event. Yes, Sasta Annual is finally almost upon us. And if you've not got your tickets for the main event yet and do want to hang out and drink mojitos with me, the main man Jason Lemkin and legends like Brad Feld, then all you have to do is enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY when you purchase your tickets. And you'll not only get 20% off the ticket price, but of course tickets to the main mojito party. I do also have another little announcement, and that's that Fred Destin, general partner at Excel, and I will be running the London Marathon in April, and we'll be running for MS UK, a charity that's very, very close to my heart, having seen the devastating effects of multiple cirrhosis firsthand with my mother suffering from the disease. Now, I've included a link to our fundraising page in the description of the show, and whatever you can afford, I would so appreciate your support. However, to the show today, and it seems every week we have a different unicorn startup founder, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by an individual who's widely recognised as a thought leader in SAS. Joining us in the hot seat today, we have Tien Zhou. Tien is the founder and CEO at Zuora, one of the fastest growing SaaS companies that's been at the forefront of the rise of subscription business models. They've raised funding from some of the best in the business, including the likes of Benchmark, Sequoia, Redpoint, and Mark Benioff, just to name a few. As for Tien, before Zuora, Tien was one of the original forces at Salesforce.com, joining as employee number 11. In his nine years at Salesforce, he served in numerous different roles, including as chief marketing officer for two years and most recently as Chief Strategy Officer. However, before we dive into the show today, if you do make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual, then you'll see the incredible Algolia team in person. Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SaaS to podcast. However, it's now time for me to hand over to the main man, Tienzo, founder and CEO at Zuora. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Tien, great to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Jason Lampkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to get started today with a, with a founding story of Zora and, and how the business got off the ground in the early days with you. Yeah, sure. Well, the company was founded towards the end of 2007, early 2008. And the idea for the company was actually hatched in Mark Benioff's office and Mark Benioff being the CEO of Salesforce.com. And it was a meeting between you know, Mark and one of the founders of WebEx. And, you know, I don't even remember what the meeting was about, but I was there and my co-founder who was working at WebEx at the time uh, was there as well. And instead of talking about the meeting, we found ourselves spending, gosh, half, 60, 70% of the meeting complaining about our billing systems. And both of us realized that we had this shared experience that in order to be successful building these new, you know, software as a service business models really required us to invest millions of dollars every single year on a system, a set of systems capability because existing ERP solutions from NetSuite and Oracle really didn't do the things that we needed to do around, around billing, around pricing, around subscription management. And so we said, look, if, if, if Salesforce is having this experience, if WebEx is having this experience, all other software vendors and SaaS vendors must be going through the same exact thing. 
But then what we really excited, you know, what really excited about us is when we said, okay, but if it's just technology companies, is that really a big enough market? And, you know, we picked our heads up outside of our industries and noticed that, you know, there's actually multiple industries going in this direction. We looked at Zipcar because at the time there was no Uber, there was no Lyft, but Zipcar showed us a world that one day people might not, you know, have to own cars and they would simply subscribe to services. And after Uber and Lyft and all these other transportation services like Surfair and City Bikes came out, you could really see that this is where the world went. And we also looked at Netflix, which at the time was selling DVDs, but they were using this new subscription business model to disrupt Blockbuster. And, you know, we can see a world where where, where people would no longer buy DVDs or CDs. And that's exactly what's played out since, since, since 2008. So we said, look, it seems like this world of subscriptions goes way beyond just the software and technology industry. It feels like all companies can really shift to the subscription economy. And if that's the case, then all companies would experience the same pains we experienced at sales force or WebEx in terms of having to spend millions of dollars on these back-end billing and payment systems. And we said, you know, that's that makes an exciting idea. Uh, I got Mark Benioff to, 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 to support this. He was one of our initial investors. Uh, Benchmark led our Series A round and, and, and away we went. And I've got two two fundamental questions from that. And, and the first is related to, to Mark Benioff and your time at Salesforce. So you were employee number 11. I'd love to hear what were your biggest takeaways then from seeing the immense scaling of Salesforce along the journey? Well, you know, what, what, if you look at uh, Salesforce trajectory, I mean, from the outside, it, it, it looks really smooth. But I'd say there's two big takeaways. One is for them to have been able to maintain their growth rate to where they are today, you know, $6 billion. That is a pretty significant accomplishment. And it's not until you actually try to do one of these things here on your own that you realize to, to, to be able to deliver that consistent growth year in, year out over a, you know, 5, 10, 15 year period, uh, I think they're 17 years old, is, 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 is not easy. And so, so hats off to Mark and to, to be able to do that. The second thing is it looks all smooth from the outside, but when you're on the inside, it's it's certainly crisis after crisis after crisis. And, you know, that's part of the fun. That's part of the development. And, you know, we could probably fill multiple books with, 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 with stories from what we had to do to, to, to build Salesforce into what it is today. And then you spoke about the rise of the subscription economy and kind of the, the business model behind it. And I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on kind of consumer interaction with the business model and what made the recurring and permanent nature and predictability of this model so appealing to you think to consumers suddenly? Well, you know, uh, people think of Salesforce and they think about the new technology model, right? They think about that Salesforce is a company that really introduced an alternative technology model instead of client server computing where you ship all this stuff on a CD that's delivered in the cloud. And we all call this cloud computing or software as a service now. But if you go back and, and even today and listen to, to, to Salesforce's messaging, how they talk, they talk about two business model shifts or two model shifts. And certainly it's a technology model is something they spend a lot of time talking about, but they spend an equal no- amount of time talking about this new business model for software. They're this model that pay as you go subscription services. And we spent just as much time, if not more, trying to figure out how to make this business model work as we did trying to make the technology model work. And what we found was, you know, we had to think differently. We had to think differently. We had our quarter early on where, you know, in, in, in software as a service terms, we had, we had net negative growth in terms of our, our, our churn was actually greater than our growth that quarter. And we had to take a hard look at ourselves in the mirror and says, look, in, in order to make this business model work, we need to care about our customers. We need to, to deliver them more value. Um, but then the flip side of it is once customers get a taste of it, right, once they get a taste of 
easy upgrades, right? And things we all start to take for granted today. Once they get a taste of easy customizations and the ability to personalize the application to their, their own benefit, right? Once they get, you know, used to not having to deal with the hassles of the infrastructure, is, is the server still up and running? Is the disk going to run out of space? And all, all that stuff, I mean, there's really no going back. And that, that's what you've seen, right? And, and, and pretty soon, once people got used to Salesforce, they started clamoring for all the other applications they used to be delivered in this way. And that's why you're seeing today the decline of the software industry, right? The traditional software industry and the rise of subscription services. But more important, this is the exact same pattern that you're seeing across the transportation industry, the media and entertainment industry, the the, the, the health industry, the financial services industry. And so we're going to see every aspect of our lives go through that shift where we're no longer going to care about the product, but instead we're going to subscribe to services that deliver the outcomes that we're looking for. And I'm really intrigued. You said there about the rise of the, the entire subscription economy. And Zora obviously powers much of that. So so taking a step back and looking at it from a meta perspective, for those that say currently employ one-off service charges or alternative pricing to subscription, uh, what benefits do you think then that subscription mo- economy model provides uh, for them in particular? Or for consumers, it's, it's great, right? It's, you don't have to do all this investment up front. You can simply pay for what you use. And if you don't need it anymore, you can certainly turn it off. And that's what we love about consumers. But for businesses, it's equally as good, right? People look at fear of that initially and say, gosh, well, I can't rely on my customers. And that's not true. If you do your job, if you provide a great service, if customers come back to you over and over again, then you've got this, this stable recurring revenue base that you can use to invest. The best example, I think, right now is Netflix. I mean, if you read the reports, Netflix is investing six billion dollars or more every year on content and the other you know media players are saying well how, how are they doing that that that's that that's crazy that's cheating but if you just do the math netflix has 85 million subscribers and if they're getting a hundred dollars let's say on average per subscriber that's 8.5 billion dollars and so you can in and, and, and the cost of delivering that is actually fairly small so you can see they're reinvesting their recurring revenue to acquire additional content that fuels their expansion into new segments new markets new customers new geographies. And that's a great example of how you can truly use the power of the subscription-based business model to, to build a fantastic business. And you mentioned Netflix there, a product that clearly has it working. I'd love to discuss then the scaling process for you now, as I know you assimilate the scaling process to a climbing process. So talk to me about this analogy for you and, and how you approach it. Well, you know, so so we, we talked about how did Salesforce get to be a six billion dollar company, and what you find is, you know, intuitively, if you when you, when you look at your kids, your nephews, your nieces, or your cousins, you realize that look, you know, people change when they grow, right? A three year old is nothing like a six year old. There's nothing like a twelve year old. There's nothing look like an eighteen year old. But then when you look at companies, you kind of forget these things. You forget that companies really change as they grow, and so so we realize this. It says look, part of being able to scale these businesses to, to to large companies and, 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 and not miss a beat, not run into a wall, right? Not not really you know, fall into a pit where, where where growth stops. You've got to navigate these changes. And to create a metaphor to help companies view this, we talk about the climb. And we sort of mark the markers of, of, of the climb up a mountain in terms of the ones and threes, right? When you're a million dollars of revenue, three million, 10 million, 30 million, 100 million, 300 million, it's kind of an arbitrary number, right? But we felt like 10x was a little bit too far. And so this is a halfway point, if you will, between the 10x. And we love the metaphor of a climb because when you climb a 
a mountain, you know, unless you're one of these these rock climbers to scale up Half Dome, you know, most of us will climb it through switchbacks, right? And that's how you go mountain. You climb one distance, you switch back, and you climb another leg. You switch back, you climb another leg. And these switchbacks are a great metaphor because when you do these transition points, it's almost an about face, right? You have to transform the company. You have to reinvent the company. And so we give offer up this 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 idea that look when you're trying to you know when you when you're doing the zero to one leg and as you're approaching that one million dollars and, and and you're realizing hey I've been successful we built a million we got our first million dollars this is the point to reinvent revisualize what a company has to look like from one to three million dollars and then as you hit your three million dollars you're like look we not only have we proved the idea right but we proved there's a business here right we have companies giving us three million dollars worth now we need to do the three dollars three million dollars a ten million dollar leg now we need to do the ten million dollars a thirty million dollar leg and if you google the climb if you google the climb Zora or the climb with my name uh, you'll see that we actually offer up a checklist of what you will of what you want to do at every single stage what the what your objective is what the organization can typically look like and then more importantly what are the things that made you successful in the previous phase that you need to start to leave behind, jettison, if you will, and what are the new competencies and new capabilities you need to build to be successful in the next leg of the journey. I'm really intrigued that you said about the switchbacks there. Are there any uh, inherent changes in terms of the management? Uh, we often hear about management churn and sometimes the employees you have, you know, the first 10 aren't going to be there necessarily at employee 1,000. What's your take on management churn as you approach the switchbacks? Gosh, you you know we hear about this all the time, and 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 here's the thing, right? Certain people certainly can make it, certain people can't. But I think as leaders, the way we have to think is how do we give people the best fighting chance to be successful in all phases of the company, right? They they they've invested their lives, their energies into the company, and how do we allow them to continue to grow? Now, if you're a large company and you're growing at five percent a year, you can have a structured way of developing people as they progress in their career ladder every single step of the way. When you're a startup company. You know, fast growth, Silicon Valley, high tech startup company, and you're growing at 30, 50, 70, 100% a year. That rate of change is just really, really fast. And most development processes, most people are, are have a hard time keeping up with that pace of change. And so what we decided to do was, you know, how do we invest in our people? And so we created a leadership development framework. And there's 22 competencies that, that we identified. We actually borrowed this from a, a framework put forth by an executive coach called Richard Hagberg. And he has 46 dimensions. We narrowed it down to 22 skills. And how do we help people identify their strengths and weaknesses? And how do we have a structured way with mentorships and managers to help them see the things that they need to do in order to continue to develop and continue to have a greater and greater leadership responsibilities as a company scales? Right, because you want your early employees to stay with you. The idea that says, "Hey, just scrap all your employees at every phase of the company," that 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 just doesn't make any sense, and, and that's not a great way to, to to build a lasting company. One of our recent guests said about kind of management churn: the key to successfully uh, retaining uh, your initial management team and core exec is clarity throughout the divisions. Do you agree with this to to a large extent? Well, the way we think about it is 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 we have a cultural value that we call ZEOs, and this really permeates our the entire culture and the entire value system the value system of our company and what is a ceo i mean you we don't choose to describe it fully we choose to tell it through stories but what you can see is in the word ceo is that there's a sense of empowerment there's a sense of leadership there's a sense of responsibility there's a sense of accountability there's a sense of acting like a ceo we have a phrase that says look we're where we're, we have one ceo in the company but we have 600 plus ceos and growing the question then is is everybody's a ceo 
how do we all work together, right? How do we make decisions within our job, within our department, within our context, within our project, and make sure that we're all coordinated? So we invest a lot of time in trying to figure out what are the things that we need to share in common. So we have a common vision. We have a common mission. We have a common view of how our company works. We see it as eight subsystems, if you will, that come together. And we have a common understanding of how we allocate resources. And then we have a common strategic planning process where we can see what are the strategies of the company and what are the key initiatives of the company every single quarter, every single year. And this is what allows us to really you know, have 600 people all be empowered to be leaders for what they do, but all operate in a coordinated fashion. And, and you spoke there about kind of operating in a coordinated fashion and harmonizing the relationships internally. In terms of building brilliant customer relationships externally between you and your customers, you've said before that billing and finance is key for customer relationships. I, I have to be honest, it's one of the first times I've heard this. So why do you think this? And does it not go contra the traditional thought that it's, it's all about the human type? touch points and about uh, personalization. Well, gosh, I mean, you can see the bill as, as this is simply a piece of paper with a bunch of dollars and cents or euros and cents, right, sent to the customer. But that's that's really missing the point. The bill is actually the embodiment of your contract with the customer. Here is the value that I created. Here's the number of minutes that you use. Here's the number of logins that you had. Here's the amount of storage that you use. And here's the value that I created. And of course, our contract allows me to monetize the value that I created, paying me $50 a user you're paying me $9.99 per gigabyte, whatever it happens to be. But that is the test. That is the test when the customer looks at it and says, this invoice is the embodiment of my current relationship with this subscription service provider. Do I still want to continue to use it? Am I getting the value that I want? The, the invoice is your regular check-in with the customer about that relationship, about that subscription relationship. Do I want to renew and continue my DirecTV uh, subscription and I got to tell you, you know, the answer is increasingly no, because I, I find myself instead using services like Netflix and HBO and Hulu. And that's where you're seeing the shift happen. So, so the invoice is the critical embodiment of that relationship. And if you see it that way, right, this is your check-in with the customer. This is how you maintain long-term successful relationships. How much of a role does customer success play for you in terms of minimizing churn and, and maximizing upsell within the subscription model? Well, the whole term customer success came from Salesforce, and, and I was there when we created it. And when we realized that look, customer churn was really the swing factor in the business model, and every percent that we can take churn down and, or, or take upsells up uh, has a dramatic effect on the business model. And oh, by the way, we realized that customers really needed handholding in order to get value from the application, and we had to invest in it. And the first group of people we created, we called them account managers, and we said, well, that doesn't really quite capture it. That makes them feel like they're salespeople. And so I remember, I think it was Mark, that said, well, why don't we just call them customer success managers, since our initiative here is all around customer success. And at first, the team actually didn't want it. They just thought it was a it was, it was was a kooky title. <laughs> they didn't want to go home with a business card and tell their friends, well, what do you do? Well, I'm this weird customer success manager, and have their friends say, well, what is that? But now, it's permeated the entire industry and people realize that you have to invest in customer success. You have to invest in helping your customers be successful with your technology because that is the core to make the entire business model work. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm a massive proponent of customer success. Do you agree customer success is the first hire pre-sales hires? I have a, a different view and especially in the early days, um, you know, a lot of startups come to me and says, you know, 
what kind of salesperson should I hire? They might be 10 employees, 15 employees, 20 employees, right? They used to be all engineering. They built their product. Maybe they signed on a couple of companies or customers that were sort of really you know, close friends, if you will. Uh, but now they need salespeople. And my advice is actually not to hire a salesperson. My advice is to have a core group of folks, you know, really work with all the initial set of customers because that gives you a shared understanding of what you do with your customer that permeates across the product management department, the product marketing department, the, 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 the customer support department. And we kind of did this at Salesforce. I don't know that we were as intentional about it, but but the core group of us that bought the first you know, 30, 40, 50 customers live, we weren't salespeople. And, and I think the same goes true for customer success. I think in the early days of a company, everybody has to be invested in customer success. Everybody has to be invested in sales because that's what it's all about, right? And, and only when you learn as an organization and you're ready to scale, does it make sense to start you know, identifying departments and having departmental leaders. At what stage do you think it transitions them from the jack-of-all-trades generalists of everyone doing everything to the specialized uh, inside sales team and the specialized customer success rep? I would say as an early stage company that your goal is to be a jack-of-all-trades trades as long as you can. And you will know when you will know when the organization is starting to break and, and, and you need to start to scale, we need to hire those department specialists. But but don't run too fast to it. You'll simply know when you have to do it. No, that's a very good piece of advice. I'd love to dive into a quick fire round with you now. That, uh, we call it 60 seconds faster. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? It sounds like fun. <laughs> well, let's start then with uh, your biggest mentor to you and how it came about. Well, the biggest mentor, the biggest person that's going to affect me, it is going to be Mark Benioff, right? And, and he's kind of a um, an interesting person in, in the terms that, you know, he's not a hands-on one-to-one mentor, but when you watch how he works and watch how he thinks and watch how he thinks about marketing and thinks about strategy, it's, it's a wealth of learning. And so so today, I, I would still count. I have a lot of mentors, um, but I would count Mark having an outsized influence on, you, on, on who I am today. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started Zora? Well, uh, I think it was Ben Horowitz that wrote a really interesting article that I read a few years into the company called the sophomore entrepreneur syndrome. And what you have is when you have success the first time around, and, and Salesforce was certainly very, very successful, you assume that you can just jump to the end the second time around. <laughs> You're like, I know the recipe. We'll just do exactly what we did in the previous company. It's all going to work out exactly the same. And of course, it doesn't. It doesn't. Every situation is new. Every company is new. Every market is new. Every product is new. And we did a little bit of that early on where we really, I, I literally uh, went back and asked HR at Salesforce to send me the list of hundred, the first 150 employees. And it's the same thing where when you hear a song, maybe from your teenage years, and it takes you back to that moment. And I figured, hey, when we hired Juicy Chris, when we hired this person, okay, this is what the company because I really wanted to visualize what the first few years of the company were, were, were like so I can reproduce it. And that was silly. I mean, you know, we had a completely different product, completely different customer base, a completely different time. SaaS was mature versus in 1999-2000, SaaS was new. And, and what you have to remember as an entrepreneur is everything that you do, you've got to take out a blank sheet of paper. Of course, you've got your experiences. Of course, you've got your pattern recognition. But you've got to take out a blank sheet of paper and rebuild for that moment, for that time, for that product, and for that customer. And then, and then we mentioned the switchbacks in terms of the climbing analogy. Which was the most challenging switchback for you with the journey with Zora? 
I would say they all have their challenges, right? I would say if you if you sort of navigate the the, the key milestones of a startup growing up, you know, there's certainly the product market fit. There's certainly you know the customer success model, if you will, right? You know, are customers really using this thing? Is it sticky? Are they renewing? Can we grow with them? There's certainly the business model aspect, right? Am I growing a business that has the right gross margin, operating margin, the right economies of scale in terms of you know my cost of customer acquisition compared to my customer life? lifetime value, but you have to work on these things in succession, right? If you're working on your business model where you don't even have product market fit, that doesn't make too much sense, right? And so that's why we have the switchback. And at every different stage, there is a different challenge to work on. There is a different thing to work on. And that is the work that you have to do during that phase. And then, and then finishing today on a, on a final question, and we're not in the quick fire now, so not to worry on the uh, 60 second answer, but I do want to discuss a crucial element of any business being the go-to-market strategy. And I've heard you say before that this is a hundred million dollar question that everyone needs to answer. So I'm intrigued what this hundred million dollar question is exactly and how you approach it. When you look at a go-to-market strategy, the key thing is it all it all has to fit. Right, your product value proposition, uh, the number of salespeople you have, right, your cost of customer acquisition, how much you charge the company for, and so one way to force all those things to really come together, I ask folks to say, you know, entrepreneurs, startup founders, exec teams, that says, well, when you're a hundred million dollars, if that's too far a stretch, we could do the same math of thirty million, but try to visualize a hundred million dollar company. How many customers do you have, right? Do you have a hundred million customers each giving you a dollar, you know, a year? Do you have you know, 10 million companies giving you $10 a year? Do you have a million companies giving you $100 a year? All the way to, do you have one company giving you $100 million a year? Where are you in that spectrum? And you have to choose, right? Don't try to like, you know, find someplace in between. And Salesforce, we, we found that we were 10,000 companies giving us $10,000, basically, roughly, at $100 million. And, and that dictated a whole set of things. That dictated how many deals a salesperson would need to do in a given month or quarter. That dictated the size of these deals. And if you have a value proposition that skews you towards a $10,000 deal, but you need the model to work out at $100,000, well, you've got an issue, right? You've got to figure out how to change your value proposition, raise your prices, and so on and so forth. Or if you've got a model where at $100 million, you're only going to have 1,000 customers, you naturally have to have a higher price point. And then once you figure out what you are, and for us, we realized that we weren't Salesforce. We weren't 10,000 companies giving us $10,000. We were going to be more at the 1,000 companies giving us $100,000 range. You realize, okay, well, that dictates what type of salesperson you have, how much marketing that you're going to spend. Do you have a freemium model or not? Right? It dictates a whole set of things, and it really helps shape how you want to design your company in those early days. At what stage should you be establishing this question in your head? Should this be pre-product? Should this be after selling for a period of three to six months and then iterating on the sales process? If you go back to the switchback structure, you know, figure it out as you're rounding the million dollar, right? The zero to one, you're just trying to prove this thing work, right? So don't overthink it, right? But then really take a step back and, and, and at that point say, okay, I've been selling my company, you know, my, my, my product at a at a $10,000 price point, my salespeople are only doing, you know, one or two deals a quarter. Well, that's when it, you know, you realize there's a chasm, right? There's a disconnect between these two things and take a step back and visualize that $100 million company and, and, and build towards that. Tian, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show and hearing more about Zora. Uh, really has been fantastic. So thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Harry.
A huge thanks again to Tien for giving up his time today to be on the show. And remember, if you do not have your tickets for Sasta Annual yet, then head over to Sasta.com and purchase them there with the code DRINKSWITHHARRY and you'll get a staggering 20% off the ticket price and free mojitos. What a deal that is. And as I said earlier to you, you can find the links for Fred Destin and I's Marathon Run fundraise page in the description below this episode. And we would so appreciate your support. And as we said earlier, we'd absolutely love to see you at Sasta Annual this year. And if you do decide to make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual, then as we said, you'll get to see the incredible Algolia team and product in person. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning fast typo tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SaaS to podcast. As always, we so appreciate your support and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode with JD Peterson, CMO at Trello.